Welcome to Three Women, Three Ways. We are the show that covers some tough topics. Oftentimes we cover tough topics. And my guest today has covered a topic that's, we've talked a little bit about it in communities and in uh, domestic violence conversations, but I don't think we've talked about it as much as we should. And she's helping us with that. She has a, at least one wonderful book on this subject, and I know it's her fourth book in general. Lisa Aronson Fontes, thank you for joining us. I'm happy to be here. Lisa, may I call you Lisa? Absolutely. Okay, thank you. She's a senior lecturer at the U Massachusetts and Amherst. She's an author of the book that I'm talking about right now called Invisible Chains, Overcoming Coercive Control in Your Intimate Relationships. And she is also published in many, many um, uh, areas, including domesticshelters.org and psychologytoday.com. So Lisa, I'm looking to you to help me understand why nobody seems to give as much credibility to that coercive control. And when I say nobody, I mean people in the general public, women who might be experiencing domestic violence, but don't quite recognize it because it is more coercive control. And I think that we've done a really great job in educating people about broken bones and black eyes in domestic violence, but we maybe haven't done as good of a job educating them about other types of violence. Coercive control can be a invisible to people outside the relationship. So you're right, you can see a broken bone, you can hear the call to the police. But if a person, and we're usually talking about women, is degraded at home, isolated, humiliated, sexually assaulted, stalked and manipulated, those actions may not be visible to outsiders. So coercive control is only beginning to get recognition in this country the UK and some countries in Europe are really ahead of us in this regard, and they've had laws against coercive control for a number of years. In the United States now, only um, Hawaii and California have laws proposed or passed, excuse me, only Hawaii and California have laws passed on coercive control. Several other states are considering laws against coercive control. Now, some people might say, well, why should you have a law against coercive control? You can't regulate people being nice to each other. But coercive control is about a lot more than one person just not being nice to each other. It's about a system of domination that deprives a partner of their liberty. It deprives them of resources such as friends and family, maybe money, access to transportation, and really curtails their ability to live a life as a free human being. One of the problems I think in people recognizing uh, coercive control is that it's so insidious. It tends to start very subtly and then grows over time. And there's a grooming process, I think, with the victims. Is that just me or is that what you've seen in your research? There is absolutely a grooming process with victims. So, and I'm using the term victims here for people before they get through a process into becoming survivors. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of people don't like to think of themselves as victims. And uh, if, if that word doesn't fit, they can just substitute another word. Mm -hmm. There is a grooming process. The grooming process often starts really early in a relationship and it can look like romance. So maybe the person who's going to become the abuser will monopolize her time will always want to be together, will ask her to cancel engagements with family and friends, or will just happen to make uh, dates on times when she would have been doing something else. He may ask her to turn off her phone when they're together. And um, the relationship often progresses really quickly. So before she knows it, I mean, really in the first couple of weeks or the first month, 
They may be living together. His name may be on her bank account. And it can all look like the most rosy and romantic situation imaginable. And as women, we've been fed a lot of uh, lies, to be honest, a lot of dreams about romance in our lives. And a course of control relationship in the beginning can look romantic. Oh, my goodness, he wants to come with me to the supermarket. Mm. You know, no one in the past has ever wanted to come with me to the supermarket. And that can seem like a real gift from a new partner. But over time, she comes to realize that she can't go to the supermarket by herself, that um, he's a upset if she takes time by herself. He's thinking that she's having a romantic or sexual tryst with somebody else if she goes out alone by herself. And so she starts curtailing her own actions. And over time, she becomes less and less free. The curtailing of one's own actions, I think that that's part of that insidiousness of all domestic violence and or intimate partner violence. Again, Let's not get hung up on the terminology. We know what we're talking about, but uh, words are important. But sometimes I think, <laughs> you know, we're we're focusing more on the words than the message. But the that insidious control and that uh, wooing process it erodes a woman's self confidence. It erodes a person's self confidence, and and you reach a point where it's easier to just cave in. It doesn't seem that important for the hassle. Do you know what I'm talking about? I. know exactly what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Let me give you an example. So let's say uh, a woman decides that on a Saturday afternoon, she wants to go see her friend or her sister, let's just say sister. And so she says, honey, do you mind if on Saturday I go out and uh, see my sister? And her partner says, "Uh, do whatever you want. So she goes, she has a good time. She enjoys being with somebody else. She comes back and he's either not there or he's there and angry or maybe he's there and drunk and angry. And she says, what's wrong? What's wrong? You said I could go. And he says, I said you should do what you want. Obviously, you want to be with somebody else more than you want to be with me. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, he has framed what's a real natural and good thing for a person to do, which is to see their friends or to see their siblings as being something against him. The next time she gets invited to go see somebody, she might just say, I'm not going to bother. It's not worth the hassle. It's not worth having to get into an argument with him about. So I'll just, I'll just stay home. She becomes more and more of a homebody, restricts herself more. She may, maybe she planned to go back to school or get some training or even get a, another job. And she may restrict herself from doing these things because she doesn't want to provoke his anger. I think that that's one of the good red flags. If people are wondering, gee, am I in a course of control relationship? You can ask yourself, yourself, am I spending a lot of time thinking about avoiding provoking his anger? Am I holding back from the things that I want to do, big things and small things, just to stay on his good side? The manipulation that's involved with coercive control is absolutely insidious and it absolutely grows over time and in my experience and what I've seen. And what you're mentioning as a red flag, is there any way to know that before when it's still so subtle? I think we we can ask ourselves with new partners, are they making us feel better or worse? Mm -hmm. Now, sometimes with course of control in the very beginning, the relationship makes one feel better because the person who becomes the abuser just, it's almost like they're a son and they're sending out these warm rays of light on us. 
and they just light us up inside and we feel better than we've ever felt. We feel like we can do no wrong. But over time, and sometimes it's pretty quickly, we discover that that light is not always shown on us. We have to work to get into that good, those good graces again. And so then we find ourselves maybe changing our appearance, changing the way we talk, changing our activities, uh, so as not to, so as to try desperately to get back into those good graces again. So I think that that insecurity, if you're feeling that insecurity early in a relationship, rather than feeling strong and boosted up by the relationship, that could be a red flag that there are problems coming. Uh, in my book, Invisible Chains, Overcoming Course of Control in Your Intimate Relationship, there's a checklist of many behaviors that you can look for if you're in a relationship and see if you are if, if it's a course of control relationship. For instance, does my partner make demands about the way I dress or what I eat? Does my partner make demands about our time spent together? Does my partner make demands about my work life? Um, and does my partner make demands about my use of the telephone or seeing friends or joining activities? So there's a whole list of things and people have found it really helpful because it helps you connect the dots. I mean, sometimes you're aware of the most obvious things like, let's say, you know, gee, he really has a temper and he gets angry and jealous sometimes. So that might be on the surface. But then if you go over the checklist and then you say, wait a second, you know, yeah, he didn't, he demanded my, my Facebook password and um, he won't let me use my phone in the evenings. And I really wanted to wear my hair short, but he's demanding that I wear it long. And then all of a sudden you realize all these things which seemed disconnected are actually part of a bigger pattern of domination. And again, going back to the subtlety of it, I mean, it can start with, oh, sure, you can go have that phone call with your sister. But meanwhile, although he might say, yes, you can go do that, I'm fine with that. But then all of a sudden, he decides to clean out the pots and pans cupboard while you're on the phone or keep interrupting you or something. It starts out so subtly that I appreciate your, your checklist. I, I've looked at it. And, and it's a good checklist because when you first start seeing those subtle signs, you think, oh, he, he just forgot that I'm on the phone or he doesn't realize that all this noise is, you know, but then as it grows, it becomes more obvious. But by that point, it, it you know, you're more invested in the relationship and uh, it's, it's harder to, to deal with. Um, right. And, and sometimes abusers will try to get their partner pregnant or have her move or or have her do other things, quit her job, that are big steps, which make it harder for her to be, to say, you know what, I'm done with this relationship. Mm -hmm. So before she knows it, she is in, in such a way that she feels like she can't get out. Um, maybe, maybe she's married and it starts as an affair. Mm -hmm. Sorry, all my books are falling off the shelf. Um, <laughs> That's uh, all right. That's the, the joy of working at home, isn't it? <laughs> right. So maybe she's married and uh, the relationship starts as an affair and then once she's had once she's gone down that path it becomes very hard to retreat or i know a woman who within two weeks of a meeting a guy he had moved into her apartment and was on her bank account oh um, my goodness and then it became really hard for her to get him out mm -hmm. or sometimes people defy people close to them their friends say this guy is bad don't go with him or their parents say if you go off with him we're 
disowning you. And, and she takes the plunge because the romance is so intense. Mm-hmm. And then once she's done that, it's really hard to swallow your pride and go back to your parents and say, I made a big mistake. Please take me back. And, mm-hmm. and by the way, I'm pregnant. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. And I think that's it. I think that has a lot to do with the decision to leave. I mean, there's many factors that have to do with the decision to leave. But I think one of them is we invest ourselves in our relationships, um, especially I would think marriage. And you, you, you defend this person. This is, this is your husband or your, you know, your spouse and, and you defend this person and you stand up for him. And then when you realize, wait a minute, I shouldn't be, this is not something for which I should be standing up. You know, this is behavior that's harmful to me, but I've, I've got my myself on the line here with all these other support people that might help me in my life. And that is that I have, you know, for years or months or weeks, told them how wonderful he is. And no, 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 this behavior you're misinterpreting. And so there's a matter of pride, too. You know, you have to, as you said, you know, swallow your pride, be you re- realize that um, you made a mistake, and you have to own up to it. And that's harder that that's like adding insult to injury, I think, you know, when you try to leave. In your book, you list certain... Heather, can I, can I just address that? Sure. Okay. Yeah. I think that that brings us to a great point. Mm-hmm. Um, what Because sometimes when women or men are trying to leave these relationships, they wonder why people don't believe them, why people might even take the abuser's side. And I think that it's important to remember that you may have been covering for this abuser for, as you said, weeks, months, or years, or decades, and not telling people about the bad things he was doing. Mm -hmm. So you're aware of them, but your friends have believed when you've said, this is a wonderful guy. Mm -hmm. And a lot of abusers are really great on the outside. They really know how to groom and charm the whole community, not just their victim. And so it really takes a period of education and, um, patience on the part of survivors to educate people in their community about what was really going on. Right. And I do, I do want to say also that, you know, any people of any sex can be abusers or, or victimized. Um, Mm -hmm. We're talking mostly about men abusing women in domestic relationships because that's the most common scenario. Right. But um, coercive control can occur in same sex relationships and, and women can coercively control men as well. Right. Um, the reason we use he for the perpetrator, or the reason I use he for the perpetrator and she for the victim is because that's the most predominant um, uh, scenario, but it is not the exclusive scenario. So thank you for pointing that out. In your book, you talk about different types of controlling behaviors and isolating, which we've kind of talked about, uh, was certainly one of them. But you talk about how isolation is accomplished. And could you go into a little bit more detail about that so that people understand exactly how one gets to the point where they're totally isolated in these kinds of relationships? Right. So um, one of the ways is that the abuser makes their partner doubt their friendships. So this could be by saying, you know, your friend's not good enough for you, or she's just a drunk, something like that, or by revealing the secret thoughts of others. And I'm putting that in quotes. So for instance, uh, the abuser could say to his partner, you know, honey, when you went up to use the bathroom, your friend Susie said X, or she rolled her eyes when you were saying such a thing. So planting a seed of doubt in the victim about the people in their circle. And 
maybe even, you know, falsifying emails and that kind of thing. I mean, a lot of that goes on. And so that the person thinks, gee, my friends don't really like me that much, or they're not worthy of spending time together with me. Yeah. Or the abuser maybe gets drunk or out of control or angry and embarrasses her every time her friends come over or she's together with family. And that's very humiliating. And so she chooses, well, I'm just not going to have them over because it's too uncomfortable a situation. Mm-hmm. So many things like that can happen. He could, uh, let's say, send the abuser could send an email from her account and say something that offends the friend and the or a text or or whatever, and the friend then denounces or renounces their their uh, the friend who's being abused, and anyway creates a rift with the social circle. In describing this, these isolating behaviors, uh, it obviously um, uh, removes the victim from her social support system, but it also serves the function of bonding her even more strongly to the abuser. And that, I think, is a significant factor as well, because if you are being fashioned or pushed or cajoled into putting all of your eggs in his basket, as it were, for support or for uh, companionship, he's all you've got. And so, of course, you're going to be bonded more to him. And what happens if you're bonded more to him? It's harder to get away. Absolutely. So the source of the pain and suffering also becomes the source of the comfort. And that's what people describe as the trauma bond. Mm-hmm. And, and I heard an example lately of that was so literal of how this occurred. Um, an abuser made his partner take cold baths, um, obligated her to get into a bathtub and sit for the number of minutes that he said. And then when he, she got out, he awaited her with warmed towels and loving words and put her into bed, which creates a very kind of warped dependence on him. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was causing this this torture, really, of this woman. And yet at the same time, he was offering himself up as the source of support. And we see that again and again. Um, there could be a physical fight and she's got bruises. And afterwards, he's giving her loving words and taking her maybe away for the weekend and cooking her favorite food or whatever. So it it becomes a very complicated scenario of both isolation and abuse um, with comfort from the abuser. Yeah, which creates a dependency. You know, um, yeah, uh, that that one. Uh, you know, okay, I'm, I'll I'll hold my comments. You're the expert. Um, <laughs> we also, you also describe under the isolating behavior, cutting off money or ruining her relationship, cutting off jobs, that kind of thing. Where there, then that also is creating another dependency, a financial dependency, as well as the support dependency that you've just been talking about. Can you talk about those kinds of isolating behaviors that affect economies? and uh, work life. Sure. So sometimes abusers depend on their partners for an income, and that happens more than you might think. Sometimes, though, uh, the abuser's goal is to cut their partner off from their income and from their employment because it offers another set of resources. Basically, it offers an escape hatch and a safe zone when she's at work. So the abuser might throw a cup of coffee at her when she's all dressed up and ready to go, or he may call her so constantly at work and demand that she pick up the phone or text him back that she loses her job. 
he may appear at her workplace and make a stink and she loses her job. He may sabotage her car or not allow her to use transportation so that she ends up losing her job. And when she, if she's dependent on him economically, then obviously it's much harder to get out. Um, I have seen so many cases where the abuser has drained their victim's bank accounts, run up debts under her name, uh, and so on. One of the first things someone needs to do if they're planning to leave an abusive relationship is to contact one of the credit bureaus and put a hold on their accounts so no loans can be taken out in their name, contact their bank, freeze their accounts, um, and so on, because it's much harder to get away if you've been impoverished by your partner. Mm -hmm. Abusers all... I, excuse me for interrupting, but in uh, from what I've seen, usually these abusers, they they are pretty savvy as to what they can do as far as uh, money and control. And um, so many cases I've heard of where an abuser will take the first step to freeze accounts or drain the accounts, as you were saying, they 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 they're pretty savvy. And again, anecdotally, I don't have research for this, but it seems to me that most of the time when victims are trying to leave, they know they need to leave, but they still want to be kind. They still, they don't want to destroy this person. And that sense of kindness kind of, um, it, it's a shooting yourself in the, in the foot, uh, in my experience. Am I wrong there? Oh, I think you're a hundred percent correct. So someone who's being victimized might say, well, I'm not just going to walk out the door when he's not here. I need to tell him what's going on. And that could put her life at risk. Uh, that, that period of leaving right before leaving, right after leaving is a very dangerous period. So thinking that you're going to have a good conversation about it and be safe is really tricky. And I do recommend that people contact their local domestic violence agency, speak with an advocate and develop a safety plan. Well, but you're the, also right. Sorry. Uh, I was just going to say one of the things that in, in line with that is if you are not ready to leave yet, that's okay. If, if these thoughts are going through your mind, you can reach out to your local domestic violence support group and they will help you. You don't, I think a lot of times people think they have to be leaving. They have to be ready to walk out the door, but they're not quite ready, but they're having doubts. That's when you can go ahead and contact a support agency at that time. You don't have to wait until you're ready to walk out the door. They'll, they can help you. Absolutely. That advanced planning actually is really helpful. And even if you don't plan on leaving the relationship, you think you're going to be able to stay and survive it, um, calling a contacting a domestic violence agency, whether it's through email or calling them and speaking with an advocate and developing a safety plan can mean the difference between safety for you and your children if you have children and a real dangerous situation. So they can give you some advice on how to keep yourself safe as well. But you're right what you said about survivors trying to be nice to their abuser. Um, they may worry that the abuser will be homeless or the abuser will lose their job. Or if the abuser has a job where they carry a gun, a domestic violence report, depending on what state they're in, might mean that they can't carry a gun. And this may keep them up at night. And I think that these worries about the abuser are misplaced the abuser alone is responsible for their actions. And if their actions get them in trouble, then they deserve that trouble. They asked for it mm -hmm. um, by acting in abusive ways. So often I see women refusing to report incidents to the police 
not wanting to see their partner get arrested or have a record. And lo and behold, the abuser calls the police and claims to have been attacked by her and fights for the children. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe he has a scratch on her face and she has 20 years of, of bruises. But if that hasn't been documented in the police record, he may be able to get away with calling her the abuser. And I've seen that many, many times. And usually in the cases that I have seen personally where that's the case, the woman ends up losing custody of her children. It seems to be a frequent fallout of that uh, kind of a situation. I mean, it's just uh, so it's, it's disturbing on many, many levels when that happens, I think. It is. So let me just say, document, document, document. If mm -hmm. you have injuries, if you have problematic texts or letters, uh, take pictures of them. Keep the pictures in a safe place. Don't think your phone is a safe place. Leave them with somebody else. Send them to somebody. Contact the police if you need to. Um, because that record is really important. Yeah. I want to hop back. There was a question I had, and it, it escaped me when, when we were talking because we moved on. But you were talking about the situation of the woman who was forced into the, the cold bath. And I know there are people listening who listened to, to that story saying, well, why did she get in? Why did she get in? She could have said no. How do you respond to people who have that kind of a reaction? So I don't know the details of this situation, but I will tell you the kinds of things that will make a person who's being victimized by domestic abuse and coercive control do things that are not things that are in their interest to do, like getting into a cold bath, but sometimes much more extreme things like committing a crime at the behest of their abuser. Um, a person who lives in a situation of coercive control lives in a situation of fear even if there hasn't been a physical assault or there hasn't been a physical assault in a while, they are afraid. They are afraid of their partner's anger, of his capacity to do harm. He may not be beating her, but he may be throwing things. He may be hurting their pets. He may have threatened the children. He have may have threatened her with homelessness. So she's afraid and she has also been psychologically manipulated. Maybe she's been kept up all night Maybe she's not allowed to eat enough. Maybe she's being micromanaged so that her every movement, her the number of toilet paper squares she uses, what she can eat is being very, very carefully controlled. And so there, this, this punishment of being forced to take a cold bath may be couched in some kind of wrong that she has allegedly committed. So it's almost like um, a punishment with a child, you did X and therefore this is what you're going to suffer. So let's say maybe she didn't prepare dinner on time or she didn't clean their bedroom adequately or she didn't change the sheets on the bed. Then the abuser might say, you know, you were supposed to do these things. You didn't do them. I do everything around here. You need to be punished. And she has been socialized in that relationship through fear to doing what he says and to thinking that she probably deserves it. Because as you know, Heather, when somebody has been subject to domestic abuse, including course of control, their self-esteem often plummets and their grip on reality or certain aspects of reality can also slip away. Evan Stark refers to this as perspective, perspecticide, perspecticide. Yeah. So um, losing the abuse induced 
loss of knowing what you know. So people lose their perspective and they take on the perspective of the abuser. And if the abuser says, you've done wrong, get into that cold bath, she may say, how quickly? Because she doesn't really feel like she has a choice or she may be given a choice. Either you're getting into that bath or I'm throwing your son out of the house. Yeah. So it's often these sort of false choices are presented. Um, she's presented with two choices, which neither of which are any good. I want to talk specifically about gaslighting. Um, gaslighting and um, the silent treatment. I've uh, used to, I, I have previously read a lot of research about coercive control and overwhelmingly, and, the, and I'm not going to give you a, a bibliography here, but um, the, the research uh, of women who have experienced coercive control as well as physical violence seem to overwhelmingly say, if I have to go through any of that again, give me the physical hitting, give me the broken bones and the black eyes because the coercive control messes up your mind and it's really hard to get your mind unmessed as you were talking about the self-image or the uh, self-confidence that kind of thing you can't just say oh, okay well this situation is different i'm in a different place now so now i will be confident and wonderful you know uh, it's almost like once those breaks occur in our our personalities or our psyches or whatever the appropriate word is you might even recognize that they are breaks. You might recognize that they're ridiculous on an intellectual level, but to try to rebuild that self-esteem or to rebuild that confidence is almost impossible. And a lot of times people talk about gaslighting. They don't really know what that term means. Can you explain the gaslighting and then the silent treatment as well? Sure. So let me say that recovering from coercive control feels impossible. I don't think it's impossible. Mm -hmm but it certainly feels impossible. It takes time. It takes somebody, the help of somebody who actually understands coercive control um, and your everyday therapist doesn't necessarily understand that. It's true. But let's talk about the gaslighting and the silent treatment. Those are both forms of manipulation and gaslighting makes a victim doubt her own sanity and also may make other people doubt her sanity. So let's give some examples. So um, in, in a woman I know, her husband used to get rid of some of her pills that she needed to take. She had medication. Let's say she took one pill a day. Well, he'd throw some away. And so all of a sudden she'd realize, I don't have enough pills to get me to the end of the month. And then she'd call her doctor and her doctor would say, I can't give you any more pills. You had, you know, we gave you 30 and she would feel like she was losing her mind. And he said, well, you must have taken them. So she really felt um, like she was going crazy. Um, if regarding something we talked about earlier, she has a really good friend. They've always gotten along really well. All of a sudden he starts telling her things that are not true about her friend, that her friend supposedly said or did, or that he noticed. And she starts doubting her friendship. So again, she feels like there's something wrong with her ability to think. Um, maybe the abuser calls her friends and said, hey, can you watch out for um, Sarah? You know, she's acting a little strange lately. So then when Sarah is with her friends or her coworkers, whoever it is, she's going to notice that people are looking at her a little funny. And she won't know why they're looking at her a little funny. And, you know, maybe she'll even turn to her abuser and say, you know, 
know, why are these people, why were they looking at me funny? And he'll say, well, gee, honey, I don't really know what you're talking about, but you know, you have been a little odd lately. And so she really starts doubting herself and losing her self-esteem. The silent treatment is another form of manipulation. So the silent treatment is really unbearable. I mean, I, I can tell you that it's really, really unbearable. Um, so the silent treatment is when the abuser acts like their partner doesn't exist, isn't worth talking to, or even acknowledging. I have known couples where the abuser did not say a word to his partner for months on end and still expected her to do the, the cooking and the cleaning. She worked in his business. They worked closely together every single day and he expected her to have sex with him at night, but he did not acknowledge her existence, um, did not look her in the eye, didn't use her name and so on. And it was really, really a form of torture for her. It might not be so extreme as that. It could be, you know, just a couple of days. Now, I'm not saying that everybody has to be willing to engage in long, detailed conversations at all times. It is an option to say, I need a little space. I'm feeling a little overwhelmed. You know, let me just go take a walk or something like that. That's okay. But you're still acknowledging your partner that they are a human being with feelings and needs. That's very different from looking through them when you look at them, pretending they're not there. And, not acknowledging and, them. and a, a story for you of a person that I know, um, that person's husband would not talk would not talk with her. And if there was a problem, and he also controlled the money. So if there was a problem, if there was a debt, if there was a bill, or she would have to speak with him. And he would literally put his fingers in his ears and go, I can't talk to you. Your voice is so abrasive. It's so uh, annoying, your voice. And he would just walk away. Would, and you could, what a terrible story. And you could imagine how that woman would then start questioning her own voice. Maybe she would stop, stop talking in other social situations because she didn't want her voice to bother anybody. Yes. And I've heard similar things said about, you know, people told that they smell. Victims told that they stink, that they smell, that they're impossible to look at, that they're so ugly that it hurts the eyes. Mm -hmm. And somebody who's subject to that kind of talk on a regular basis will begin to believe that it's true and it'll affect how they act with other people as well. And that story, those anecdotes uh, bring us to the next uh, topic that you discussed in your book, which is the belittling and the degrading, the, the inching away of a person, the chipping away of an entire soul. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the, the degrading and belittling that abusers do? Sure. So the goal of all of these tactics, of course, of control is control. Mm -hmm. So one way to control a partner is to make them feel badly about themselves, to make them doubt themselves, to make them feel ashamed of themselves. Um, and if our partners are not building us up and help feeling, helping us feel better about ourselves, we shouldn't be with them because who needs that? <laughs> That's what we get from our enemies. We should not be getting that from our partners. Mm -hmm. So there, that can happen in any number of ways. Some of which we've talked about, it can be insulting. You know, you're so fat or you're so thin or you're, so awkward or you're so klutzy or you're, you know, you're too uncoordinated to drive or um, what do you mean you're going to go back to school? You're, you're not smart enough to do that. I mean, this can show up in many, many different ways. 
There's a lot of sexual degradation that can go on with coercive control, too. Um, okay, if we talk about that, Heather? Sure, absolutely. Okay. It happens. Let's talk about it. Okay, and a lot of times people shy away from the sexual part of domestic abuse. But often there's an unwritten rule, or maybe it's an explicit rule, of sex on demand. If the abuser wants sex, the victim is expected to give it. Maybe she gets some say in how the sex happens or when, maybe she doesn't. And sex on demand is not taking into account the humanity of the victim. Um, if a victim cannot say no sometimes, then she's never really free to say yes because she knows that she really doesn't have a choice in the matter. And um, a lot of abusers purposely use degradation in their sexuality. So maybe forcing anal sex or forcing her to engage in other acts that she doesn't want to or deliberately causing her pain. And, um, you know, sometimes couples make choices to play sex games. Um, and that's not the same. And sometimes this, these coercive and degrading tactics in sex start as games. You know, oh, let's do a little role play. You know, let's do a little dominant submission stuff. But if the victim does not have, if she is a victim in other parts of her life, she's not free to say no in sex play. Does it, ever, be, uh, does it ever occur where the only area in which the control is exerted is in sex? I think that everything can occur. I mean, I think that that, that is possible, that the control would be exerted in sex. So then the question becomes, is it coerced or is it entirely voluntary? If it's entirely voluntary, then it's a game. They're playing a game. But if the person doesn't the victim the victimized person doesn't have the choice of saying no i don't want this then that is um an abusive tactic i just wondered if it if you had encountered it where the whole um dominance and submission thing was res reserved to the bedroom as if you will and the other areas of life functioned according uh, appropriately or is uh, is that something i guess what i'm getting at is are there abusers who only abuse in one area whether it be sexual or financial or whatever and it doesn't grow to other areas of abuse i i think there are certainly people who use uh economic abuse let's say against their partner or um intimate partner sexual violence against their partner and may not use all of these different techniques Mm -hmm. So you don't have to use all of these different techniques to be engaged in course of control. Mm -hmm. But there's something controlling there which makes the victim unable to get out of that um, you know, sexually abusive situation. So there may be other things going on that could perhaps be more subtle. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes, for instance, there's a really low level but constant physical violence. So maybe, you know, the abuser pushes his partner out of bed in the morning or, or you know, dumps a plate of food on her because he's unsatisfied with, with the food or pinches her or holds her down or grabs her harshly. And though none of those may qualify as assaults that she's ever going to report to the police. And she may deny that she's physically abused and not feel physically abused. And yet she's being constrained physically in all these different ways. One of the areas that you talk about in the book is controlling a woman through her children. This is huge. 
this is huge. And of course, we see that when a woman does attempt to leave and gets the courts involved, the best way if this woman is no longer in your your household to control is to control through the children and through the courts. How does that happen? What are some examples of it? And can you talk about that? These are just some of the most heartbreaking situations, Heather, where a woman may believe that she's staying in an abusive relationship for the children. She's staying with the children's father or stepfather um, for the kids because she thinks it'll be it's important for them to have a father, um, even if the father is an abuser. Um, maybe finally she gets the the gumption to leave, or she really has sees herself as not having a choice but to leave. And then she could be slapped with endless um, lawsuits, custody battles, um, acting out. Uh, for instance, maybe he does have partial custody and he doesn't return the children when he should. Um, I think it's really important for women to lawyer up um, in terms of these issues. And as we said earlier, you don't have to worry about being super nice. Um, I knew a woman who was terribly abused by her husband, and uh, when she had a baby, she fled for her life, really, when the baby was one month. Well, her ex started hassling her, demanding visitation with the baby without her presence. Mm. And she felt on some you know, moral level that she should provide that. Um, she's part of a Facebook group um, for domestic abuse abuse victims um, called Domestic Violence Awareness and Support, which I recommend your listeners may be interested in, Domestic Violence Awareness and Support on Facebook. And um, she got a lot of uh, great advice about not needing to uh, provide that kind of visitation, uh, protecting herself with a legal agreement. Um, but he was clearly just using this baby who he'd shown no interest in whatsoever as a way to get at her. I read a study um, a couple of years ago about um, men who were granted custody, men who fought for custody. They wanted full custody. They got full custody. And guess who ended up raising the kids, either their new wife or their mother. They didn't <laughs> accommodate raising their children for the most part, uh, at least in that particular study. Um, so obviously that's about I won and you lost at the expense of the children. Sometimes abusers demand custody because they don't want to have to pay child support. Oh, yeah. And in fact, sometimes they demand custody because they want the mom to pay them child support. Mm -hmm. And I have seen this happen in cases where she was really impoverished and um, he had been more skilled at manipulating the system. Mm -hmm. I think we really need to educate the courts. I serve as an expert witness on some cases, and um, so does Evan Stark, and there are a few other people who do as well. Um, and we really need to educate the courts about the ways in which they are being manipulated to serve as an arm extending the reach of the abuser um, post-separation or post-divorce. So there's a name for that. Um, we call that procedural abuse. Yeah, and it is rife i mean it's just rife we had joan meyer on the show and she talked about her findings and excellent yeah joan meyer is great she is and i need to get call her and, and get her back yes joan is a wonderful wonderful researcher and she's a great interview and you mentioned in that um talk about abuse through the children and i guess we kind of segued into abuse through the courts as well 
that women really need to lawyer up. The problem with that is most women are not in a financial position to lawyer up. And that's a huge issue there. Right. I, I, okay. You want to comment on that? Sure. Yeah. Yes. Many women leaving an abusive situation cannot afford a lawyer. So there are, it really varies by where you live. You may be able to get access to a pro bono or free lawyer, contact your local domestic violence agency, ask if they have any recommendations. Um, if you Google um, Sims legal momentum, I can send you the link, Heather, because that may not be entirely clear. Mm -hmm. um, they may be able to help you find a local lawyer. The other thing is that Child Protective Services may be your friend. Now, a lot of women who are in abusive situations are scared to death of Child Protective Services. They are, maybe the abuser told them, you know, you spanked Danny and I'm going to call Child Protective Services on you and they're going to take him away. Um, I have seen situations where Child Protective Services were really helpful to an abused woman in terms of keeping the abuser away from her children. But there's a big caveat here. The abused woman has to truly separate from the abuser. Mm -hmm. They have to truly demonstrate that they're going to protect their children if they can't, if they're not in a situation where they can do that or are willing to do that, then it is, it is risky. Yes, it's risky because CPS can say, well, you're not protecting your child, so therefore we're going to take the child away and, and put him or her in a safe space, safe place. So that is risky. The other problem that I've seen, and, and it's kind of a Sophie's choice, I guess, if you will, um, courts will order, CPS will say, no, you you need to keep this child away from the abuser. But then the courts order that the abuser get get visitation. So what is the woman supposed to do there in that situation? And that happens frequently. It does happen frequently and it's really hard and it's really heartbreaking. And, um, you know, sometimes child protective services can make sure that they, that the visitation is done only in public, that maybe it's even supervised um, either by a professional or by, by a safe family member or friend. Mm -hmm. um, but these are heartbreaking situations, but I, I do just want to underline that anybody who stays with an abuser thinking that it's best for the kids may be setting themselves up for some major, major heartache. I have known way too many adult children who grew up watching their mothers get abused, who blame their mothers as much as their fathers for the abuse, for not protecting them, for failing to protect them. Someone you know, I, I, yeah, I'm going to throw in a personal anecdote here. My uh, family of origin was abusive. My mother had mental issues and um, she was abusive to my father. And so that, you know, that's one of those anomalies that we were talking about before that doesn't happen, but it happens. And it happened in my family growing up. Years later, um, when I was in a, a difficult marriage and I was trying to decide whether to leave or not, my older sister and I were talking and I said, I just don't know. I don't know whether it's better for the kids for me to go or to stay. I just don't know what's better for the kids. And my sister said, Heather, we grew up in a house where our parents were married for 53 miserable years. And I don't see that it did us much good. <laughs> Bingo. There you go. Yeah. There you go. She really told you. Yeah. 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 So, and I think that that's wise advice. You know, sometimes it's best to say no, getting out is better 
than staying in. But that being said, you know, you can't be cavalier about it because, you know, the point of lethality is when you try to leave the point, you know, you may lose control of protection of your children. If you're still there, you can put yourself between your child and your abuser. If you aren't and that uh, abuser gets gets uh, visitation and, and or custody, then you can't do that. So, I mean, it's it's not a simple choice for any person to make. And I don't mean to make it sound simple. Um, it's not a simple choice, and it really is important that people make their own decisions about their own lives. Yeah. I do think it's helpful to speak to a domestic violence advocate yes. um, because they can help help sort all this through, including the children's safety. Right, right. You can't really, you really have to have help. You know, one of the things that I don't know if you ever had a doula or anything when you had children or if you had children, um, but a, a doula was just a wonderful thing for me when I when I had children, you know, babies. And I often thought when I was going through divorce, we need divorce doulas. We, we need divorce doulas who can say, yes, this is what the lawyer will say. This is what he will say. This is, you know, you go through childbirth once, twice, three times, maybe four times, you know, you go through divorce maybe once, twice, you know, you, we don't have a daily learning curve for these life events, but somebody who sees it all the time can recognize patterns and say, yep, this is what's going to happen, blah, blah, blah. We need to have those divorce doulas to help women understand what's going on. Um, and the closest that we have, as far as I can tell, are the different support agencies. So any woman who's going through that, any person who's going through that should avail themselves of that help, I think. I'm looking at the clock and I'm going, wow, I need to move on because I don't want to miss some of these points. And one of the points, and I, and honestly, I was so happy to see this in your book. Why does coercive control happen? Why? Are these just bad people who have, you know, they, their mothers beat them or something? I mean, why does this occur so commonly? And it is, I think, relatively common in our culture to one degree or another. So let me talk about course of control of men over women. And then we can talk about other kinds of uh, sure. situations, kinds of relationships. So a lot of men grow up as boys feeling that the most important thing is to be on top, to win to be dominant, to be king of the mountain. A lot of girls are taught that the most important thing is to be helpful and kind and supportive to others. And even where we raise our girls to be economically independent, maybe to go to college, we're still probably teaching them that they should be taking care of other people's feelings and they're getting a heavy dose of romance is the most important thing in your life. Your family is the most important thing in your life. You know, romance can save you. Um, and so we have these two very imbalanced situations. Um, some guys, um, and I think it's a relatively, I certainly don't think it's all men by any means no. or even most men, mm -hmm. um, but some small portion of men can create a lot of trouble in the lives of many women. And I think it's a, a combination of Feeling, them feeling insecure enough in some cases that they need to dominate another person to, to have themselves feel fully manly. Um, and in other cases, I think that they are feel just entitled to a woman's labor and to have a woman focus her entire life on them. And then women are really raised to take care of their partners, um, to feel often like their families are the most important thing in the universe and that they are solely responsible for their families. And so you put a man and a woman together, and I think it's easy to see how this can play out. And society is so accepting of women being subservient to men 
that people don't comment on it often. It just seems natural mm -hmm. that, you know, she's picking up and moving to somewhere where she's going to be very isolated for his career mm -hmm. or because he wants to, um, that she's giving everything up for him can seem very natural. Now, I do want to say that, you know, you do see course of control in same-sex relationships. And um, I think that you may not have the gender dynamic, but you do have the dynamic of, of the person who's being victimized probably being a little bit more of a caretaker and um, the victimizer feeling in some way entitled to have the services of their partner. Mm -hmm. I, I agree with that um, wholeheartedly from what I've seen in the research that I've read. You know, you were talking earlier about, um, well, we were talking earlier about the different types of, of, of uh, coercive control, and you, you alluded to some threats of physical violence, etc. Does coercive control always lead to physical violence eventually? Some coercive control relationships include physical violence, and some don't. And some just have a few incidents and that's all it takes to have a permanent threat. Mm -hmm. So I would say um, to people not to think that, oh, I can't have a course of control relationship because there's no physical violence um, because that can be present. And as you say, it may grow and change over time. We know that the first incident of physical violence in a couple's life is often when she's pregnant with their first child. Can you believe that? Yes, that, that the abuser, <laughs> yes. the yes. abuser is jealous of the attention and the relationship that she has with her fetus, and so becomes. And he know also knows she's trapped at that point, or she she may think she's trapped. So that may be the first time he becomes physically violent. But there could be signs, of course, of control before that. So the two, I, I think of it as having a toolbox. So an abuser has a toolbox of tactics: isolation, manipulation. Um, and one of those tools is also physical violence. And he may not need to use it or he may not need to use it often. Mm -hmm. yeah. I wanted to comment to you about, we started out this whole conversation about how coercive control, except in a couple of states, is not seen as a crime or an offense. And yet in England, I think, it's, I think it was four years ago, they actually um, mandated coercive control be uh, uh, considered a criminal charge. Um, about four years ago, I did a presentation to uh, American probation and parole officers uh, about coercive control. And to be quite honest with you, I was expecting kind of a poo-poo, lackadaisical kind of response, because here are these people who are used to dealing with, you know, heavy-duty criminals who've done egregious physical things. And I was not anticipating a, a real welcoming kind of a response to what I was saying about coercive control. But I must tell you, it was one of the most responsive groups ever. The conversation began, you know, I gave my presentation and then the, the conversation turned to, but we can't do anything when we see this going on because it's not a crime. We can't go to the judge and say, yes, he's bullying her, he's doing this, because that's not a crime. They want crimes. And the whole room then became a brainstorming session of how can we interpret, could we look at city statutes? Would something that a person, a, a perpetrator does on uh, with coercive control possibly be a violation of a city statute or a county's, you know, law? And it was so refreshing to see this entire room of probation and parole officers talking about how they could use coercive, turn coercive control into some sort of a law-breaking charge 
that would convince a judge to put this person back in in jail. It was so refreshing. Have you had a chance to speak with probation parole officers about this? I have not, Heather, but I, I do want to, first of all, commend you for doing that. And second, also say that there are parts of course of control that may be a crime. Mm -hmm. um, so for instance, taking another person's money without their consent or um, identity theft, um, stalking and so on. So sometimes these are crimes when committed against another person and not against one's spouse, yes. but sometimes they are. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, I hope that coercive control you know, um, laws legislation will be confirmed um, across the country. It's not that I wanna put more people in jail. You know, that's not my goal. I don't think that's anybody's goal. But part of what happened in the UK with laws against coercive control, which were first enforced in 2016, is that there was a massive educational campaign across the country and um, of everybody, you know, pub the public, the general public, and also the police and the courts. And police learned to look at any particular incident in a historical context. So an example from one of the first men charged under the course of control statutes, a man had put some kind of substance into his girlfriend's family's tractor. So the tractor wouldn't work because he was mad at her. Mm -hmm. And the police, you know, ordinarily they'd give a ticket for that kind of thing. But in this case, they said, huh, it's a crime against a family member. Let's talk to her alone. So they asked her if there had been a history of domestic abuse. She never would have said a word. So she opened up her phone and she showed them photo after photo of herself after physical assaults. And he ultimately was convicted mostly of the course of control because he kept her prisoner, he controlled her every move, um, but also of the physical assaults. And um, so it's really been, the, the police have learned to see any particular incident as a window um, into a relationship, a history of domestic abuse. Lisa, I'm having such a good time with you. I hope sometime in the near future, you'll find time to come back with us because there's so Thank much you, that Heather. we didn't get a chance to discuss. I'm looking at the clock and I'm going, can't possibly be close to an hour, but it is. Where can people get your book, Invisible Chains, Overcoming Coercive Control in Your Intimate Relationship? Well, it's available on every major online, uh, from every major online retailer. Um, the cheapest place to buy it right now might be guilford.com. That's G-U-I-L-F-O-R-D.com. Um, Guilford is a, a publisher of, um, you know, psychological and social work kinds of books. And this book is $11.21 on their website, $11.21. That's good price. Good. Really tried to keep it reasonable. It's even cheaper if you get it in the electronic version. Yeah. And um, I really welcome hearing from readers about um, their impressions and if they can relate. I'm also easy to find on the web. Um, LisaFontes.com is my website. And um, I really appreciate this opportunity. I think well, the work you're doing here, Heather, is so important. We and appreciate you coming on and talking about your book, talking about this topic in general. Such a huge topic. And I, I thank you for your time. I do hope you can come back and uh, update us and help us understand some other things that, that we didn't have time to cover. Thank you, Lisa Fontes, for coming to our show. Thank you for listening to Three Women, Three Ways. Join us again next week.